Greetings in the name of Jesus again this morning. Good to be with you all again and uh, worship together, study the Bible. Maybe we'll take just a few minutes or a minute or two. Anyone who would like to recite all or part of the memory work, give you an opportunity to do that. opportunity tonight, Lord willing. This morning I will keep a fairly traditional practice where I come from in the Sunday morning of the invited speaker to speak on the home, Bible principles for godly homes is the subject this morning and I'm going to go over a couple of things pretty quickly because I want to talk about the principles of marriage and then also the roles in the home and so there's going to be I'm going to make some fairly broad statements and not really go into a lot of detail on certain certain topics I realize today is uh, Mother's Day and I do not have a message geared particularly toward mothers but um, I do wish you God's blessing in your role as a mother, if that is where you find yourself. It is a um, a challenging role to fill, and to do it well takes a lot of patience and relying on God, and I just want to bless you for that, if that's where you find yourself this morning. So we're going to start by looking at marriage a little bit and then talk about fathers and mothers and children. The message is not a how-to message as such, because I believe that God in his infinite creativity has made things vary so much that to say that this is the way, the how-to to have a good marriage or the how-to to raise children is fraught with a lot of problems. Um, whereas I tend to prefer to look at principles and lay them out and say this is what God wants you are going to have to figure out how to get there but we can't break away from these principles if we do we're at sea Tuesday night I believe it was we talked about the sanctity of life and how our society has warped that concept and they use a false standard of what life is and what makes life worth saving um, and 
right in with all of that, we have a wreckage happening in marriages in our society. And the attempt to redefine what a marriage is is very troubling. Because even outside of Christian and Jewish presuppositions, you have a basic built-in concept in most societies that I'm aware of that marriage is man and woman. It may be one man, multiple women. It may be one woman, multiple men. But usually, at some level, it's man and woman. And so when you have this societal shift to make it something other than that and try to say that's marriage, it's really going to cause a lot of problems. It is causing a lot of problems. And if you look at, at creation as a broad thing, you see all these binaries that complement each other in creation. You have heaven and earth, two complementary things in God's creation. You have dry land and sea, and, and you just logically follow that through, and you have man and you have woman. And, and to try to say that that's not foundational to just the creation principle or even just a... a I guess creation is the best word I can use, but just even even outside of a, a Christian presupposition, it makes a lot of sense. And to try to go away from that is is very disturbing. And that's not really the topic just this morning, but I believe that in our world, a functional, godly home operating on the biblical principles is probably one of the most powerful witnesses ever. What what has been your experience? If you go somewhere as a family unit in public, you kind of draw some attention, especially if you happen to have several children, um, and especially if they are moderately well-behaved. You, you get a lot of attention. It's like, wow, what's going on there? You know, and Some of it's a little negative, but you still get some attention. You get an opportunity to interact with people, whereas if you're just alone, it's not as... It's not as um, obvious, I guess, would be the, the correct term. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at some concepts for husbands and wives. Just some, some biblical concepts, some things that we need to understand. Now, 1 Corinthians 11, we turn to to talk about the covering of the head for women. But in that teaching is woven a thought, a concept about headship and about authority structure. We tend to get a little shy about that word authority because authority has been abused, but God isn't shy about it, and so we shouldn't necessarily be either. So if we break in at verse 3, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. And it moves through there and just talks about this thing of how this, this, this structure. Now, it's really hard to, to frame this in a way that doesn't look like somehow that the women are at the bottom of the food chain. And so I prefer to picture it as a series of circles. So you have a big circle surrounding everything, and that's God. And inside that, we have another circle that is Christ. And inside that, we have another circle that is man. And then finally, at the very center of that, you have woman. And she's at the center of the protection 
and the yeah protection i think is the best word i can use of of that whole structure and when we step outside of that we're actually stepping outside of a very special place especially for ladies if you choose to step outside of the circle suddenly there's not a lot of protection there's not a lot of hope that i can offer you that you will have a um, satisfying and fulfilled life and the same of course is true for us men if we decide that we're going to live our lives outside of Christ we're going to lose a lot of protection we're going to lose a lot of fulfillment and satisfaction in life and um, I, I believe that our authority our headship if you will as men is only valid when we are under Christ now that doesn't mean that the wife can't submit to a man who is outside of Christ and she will receive a blessing for that the, later on in scripture we learn that that's okay and that that's, that's actually a good way to witness to an unbelieving husband but, but a man who is outside of the authority of Christ has no basis for which to ask his wife to submit to him it, we can't do that. And it's true in all authority structures, no matter where you're at. But we're talking about the home this morning, and so we need to um, to get a grip on that. Now, one of the things I'll just say right here at the outset, this whole thing of submission and headship, in my experience, in our experience, I should say, it's our marriage, not my marriage, but I don't even really know when this happens. I don't really know when my wife is submitting to me and when I'm actually taking the headship. And I'm not saying that to, to say that we've attained to some level of spirituality that is way out there, but I think it's just because we've both approached our marriage with this idea that it's, it's going to have to work because we both know what happens when marriages aren't working. It's probably one of the worst lives to live. I can't imagine what it would be like to have a bad marriage to where you can hardly speak to each other and it's hard to even communicate on very basic things like when are you going to leave for church? Um, and, and I've actually seen marriages that are in that kind of shambles and so I know that uh, for my wife and me and I hope she's not too embarrassed at some of the things I'm going to say this morning but um, all I have to pull from is personal experience, okay? I only have my marriage to reference, and I have witnessed some other people's, but I don't know what it's like to live in those marriages. So I, ho I hope you can understand why I'm pulling so much from personal. But um, back to my thought, I don't really understand when this all happens. I don't know of any time in our marriage where I simply sat down and said, okay, wife, you have to submit to me in this area. I've never done that, that I know of. Now, she may have felt that way, but... She was sweet enough about it that I never knew that it happened. And, um, and so I'm, I'm suggesting, submitting to you this morning, that when we find ourselves in this proper um, structure, that as men we are submitting ourselves to Christ and we are placing ourselves under his rule and our wives are willing to do that in her, her role, that you, will, you won't even really know when it's happening. Just like Jesus could say that his father's will and his will were one. They, they, they worked together to the point where there wasn't really this structure where you have God forcing Jesus to do anything. So I hope you can uh, understand what I'm saying there because I think it's, it's very core.
And if a husband feels like he has to make a big rule to test his wife's submission, I suggest that he's way off on where he needs to be in his relationship with Christ. He doesn't understand some things that are very foundational to a love authority relationship. Well, let's go through the scripture and look at a few more passages. I'm not going to teach you anything new this morning, I don't think. But if you turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, we have another um, section where we can get some concepts about what marriages should be like. And we find these in verses 22 through 33. And Paul is writing here, and he switches back and forth between wives and husbands. And he starts out saying, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that <clears throat> loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So here we have some concepts for husbands. Husbands are to love. Wives are to reverence and submit. The word submit there is another word that we don't like because it sounds bad. Um, but it doesn't have to be a bad word. Notice also that there's this concept that comes through again from what I was saying earlier about the, the place of a wife or of a woman being a very safe place. Verse 23 talks about being the savior of the body. Now, I know our, our as husbands, we are not our wives' saviors. I understand that in the sense that we cannot save their souls. And yet, I do not know that I can offer a whole lot of hope for a saved woman if she's willingly stepping outside of her husband's leadership. Is that okay? Um, it, it's, of course, it has to be in the Lord. We understand that. But I, I'm operating under the assumption that your husbands are actually godly. Um, the thing that's fascinated to me about this passage is that... Paul says, not only does he switch between wives and husbands, but he goes into the thing of Christ and the church. And what he's actually saying is that the marriage is a way for people to understand how Jesus operates with his church. And so recently we had a speaker at our church um, there in Darbin, and he said, what if the bishop, whenever he had you up here as a couple and he was he was about to perform the ceremony of marrying you, what if he would say to the husband, do you promise to show to the world by loving your wife what Christ has done for his church? Are you willing to take that on as a lifetime responsibility? I wonder how quick we would be to say, sure. 
And the, and the flip side is true. What if he would have asked you as a woman, are you willing to show the world in your marriage what it looks like when the church submits to, to Christ? And it opened up a different line of thought. I mean, it's there. It's there, but whenever someone actually unpacks it that way, then, then you're forced to think through it a little bit. And so really, isn't that what Paul is saying here? He's actually saying that in some way, we are to use our marriages, or through our marriages, we are to show the level of love that Christ had for his church, and that we are willing to actually give our lives for our wives. And the other side of the truth. And so think of it this way. If Would you be satisfied if Jesus love for his church was your love for your wife are you, is that acceptable and if it's not what are we willing to do about it and the same thing is true over here if your level of submission to your husband is all the church needs to submit to Christ is that enough is it good enough and if it's not then i suggest you have a little work to do because this is the this is the type that we have and as i as I looked at these complementary things in, in creation that I told you about, like heaven and earth, dry land and sea, the interesting thing is when you run all the way to the end, you end up with the new heaven and the new earth, and it's, and it's in the context of the marriage supper of the Lamb. So you have another type of binary going on there. Um, you can ponder that for yourself sometime. But anyway, so in this, in this passage, we learn that the that our marriages are actually to be a pattern of Christ and his church. Let's move on to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We turn to 1 Timothy 2, and we often start in at verse 9 to get some concepts, but we need to remember that verse 8 comes before verse 9. 1 Timothy 2.8, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence, for Adam was first formed, then Eve. And it goes on and talks about how Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. And anyway, so what we're learning here in the concept of marriage, um, to the husbands, to the men, we learn that before we can really be leaders, it's just building on the concept that we stay under Christ and in his protection and in his, his authority. We must be holy and pure before we can ever even address what the women are supposed to be. And if we're not holy, if we're not pure before God, then we don't really have any business saying, you know what, you need to stop wearing gold. You need to stop decorating your body. You need to learn to be a meek, quiet person. We don't really have that authority to do that. And so until we're ready to address verse 8, we can't really address verse 9. But you ladies, I also will suggest to you that even if the men over you are not doing what they're supposed to do, you will find a blessing in honoring this Bible principle. And the principle is that you are to be a quiet person, a modest person, 
And modesty is about is as much about covering your body as it is not standing out. Modesty is twofold. And so that, I think that's why it goes on and talks about how women are actually su- supposed to be retired in, in public. They're supposed to be quiet. They're to learn in subjection. Because modesty is as much about how you act and conduct yourself as it is how you dress yourself. First Peter chapter 3 is some more uh, concepts for husbands and wives, men and women, if you will. Verses 1 through 7. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, that also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. See, there's that concept that even if a husband is out of his place in Christ, a woman can actually be a very powerful witness by being in subjection even as he is not in subjection. It can be a means of bringing a man to understand something about his standing with Christ. Um, anyway, and it goes on in verse 2, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. I'll skip over some verses there um, and jump down to verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. What I want to get from here, some of the thoughts are repeated in First Timothy for women, um, and it mentions here specifically the meek and quiet spirit. But then for men, we learn in verse 7 that we are to give honor to our wives and that we should never forget that they are heirs together of the grace of life. See, there, there it comes back to this concept that we don't really have the right to demand submission from our wives. I think that's a warped concept. Jesus doesn't do that to his church. Um, and so we shouldn't really be going around being taskmasters just to prove that we are somehow in charge and that she is somehow supposed to submit to that. That's just a warped concept of authority. Um, and it says here that, that it's actually to be more of a protection, that we give honor to them. We understand that there's some differences in the way we're made, and we try to understand that. We try to learn to know them, and we protect them from things that could be harmful to them. Titus 2 mentions some things for women. It doesn't so much for men in the context of marriage, but it very specifically mentions something for women. In uh, Titus 2, verse um, talks about how the aged women are to teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Now it does have some exhortation to young men to be sober-minded, to be a pattern of good works, to be uncorrupt, to be grave, to be sincere, to have sound speech. A lot of things there that men are supposed to be, but it doesn't actually mention it as husbands. But, of course, by extension, that is who we should be as well. And the reason I wanted to read this is because when we have marriages where the lady is not willing to be in her place in the structure that God has planned, it says here that the word of God could be blasphemed because of that. And, you know, this is true when you take this type over into Christ in the church. When the church doesn't submit to Christ, the word of God is blasphemed as well, right? 
And so it logically follows that if our marriages are to be a type of that, then when we have wives that are out of their place, it could be a, a reason for people to blaspheme God's word. That's a terrible thing to think about. And it puts a lot of burden on you, but of course, as men, I believe that we should take our role very seriously as well. And the reason that I say that is because of this next observation. The question comes, in a marriage, which comes first? The submission and respect or the love and cherishing of our wives? Well, I don't know which comes first. Maybe the love. I don't know because often the men pursue their wives um, during the courting stage and all of that. So maybe that comes first. I don't know. But after you're married, what? who has to give first? Do we love before our wives submit? Do our wives submit before we love? Again, in a very healthy marriage, I don't think these conversations even take place. But I think we have all seen, and hopefully none of us are involved in a marriage, where this is the case, where there's this crazy thing going on that, well, as soon as you learn to to submit to me, then I'll love you, or vice versa. As soon as you love me, I'll, I'll actually listen to you. I think we need to remember that a marriage is not a 50-50 partnership. It is actually 100%, 100%. And if we are at any point trying to be selfish in the relationship, it will go bad. It just does. Now, we're all inherently selfish, and so it's a battle, but um, if we ever get this thing where it's just a 50-50 partnership, then good luck you're probably going to be in for a lot of contracts and signing on the dotted lines because it's just not the way relationships work. I do believe that when we look at Christ and his church, that love probably does come first in some sense because I told you before that God's love has no because. We love him because he first loved us. And I think that's the pattern that it is in marriages usually. And I think it's a very odd lady indeed who would not respond to true, unselfish love. I think it's a very strange woman who wouldn't respond to that. But I think it's also true that it would be a pretty strange man who would refuse to take his place in the home when there is a supportive, respectful wife. And so they really do kind of feed each other, and it's really hard to know which comes first. I think it's Emerson Egerick in his book... um, Love and respect. He says, to decide who goes first, you're going to have to figure out who's more mature. No, and so we want to be that person, right? Definitely, we want to be the more mature. So if you're the more mature, then you love first. If you're more mature, then you submit first. And then you can fix the whole problem. <clears throat> I think our marriages need to be a safe place. We need to be able to trust each other. We need to know that the things that are shared in a marriage relationship will not be told um it i have heard stories where ladies will sit around and talk about their husband's weird ways and sometimes men will talk about their wives and i just want to cringe because you know things aren't good it just isn't good um we would never we would never if we truly love someone we would never expose their weaknesses to the to the world We're going to try to protect them 
and try to keep that from happening. That we would put them in the best possible light that we could. Now, obviously, there's times where sin is there, and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about generally healthy marriages will not expose others, the other's needs. Another point about healthy marriages that I think needs to be discussed is that we should never compare our marriage with another person's marriage. And so while I present some things to you from my perspective, my personal experience, it is not for you to use it as a measuring stick for your own marriage. There is really no benefit in comparing marriages. What would be the point? Because you're not married to that person, and so your wife will never respond the way another person's wife will. And the same is true for the husband. Your husband will never be another man. And so one of the things that puzzles me whenever I look at marriages that, quote, go bad, and they end up years later and they can hardly speak to one another, either just through... um, because they have major temp- temper tantrums with each other, or just just this distance that happens. You, you see both. Um, the question that comes to my mind for people like that is, why did you get married in the first place? What was the initial glue that even held you together? So why is that not there anymore? Um, and I wonder sometimes if it isn't because there's comparisons that are being made instead of working at making the marriage the best that it can be. Well, moving on, I want to say just a little bit about children and then move into this aspect of parents. Usually, in a marriage, there are children. And I already spoke about children when, it, when we, did, we should desire children when I talked about the sanctity of life and how we should be very open to children coming into our home. And so I want to just talk about some principles now for fathers and for mothers. And again, it isn't so much about how to be a father, how to be a mother. When you think about Scripture, how many specific commands can you think of on how to raise children? Not very many. And, and this has actually been quite freeing for me because I remember when our first child was born that I suddenly realized that I was not ready for this. That it's bigger than me. This thing is, this responsibility, suddenly I have become a father. What in the world is a father? Well, yeah, we all know what they are, but Anyway, I remember asking a man who I thought had done very well with his family if he would be willing to just share with me some, just what, what would he give me as advice. And I, I fully expected, knowing him as I did, I fully expected a fairly uh, long answer of how you should be consistent in your personal life, consistent with your children, that you should be you know, willing to discipline them, and et cetera, et cetera. He thought for a moment, and he simply said, love their mother. Oh, that's easy. I can do that. Um, and I've pondered that since. It's been 12 years since I had that conversation with him. And I've mulled over it. That's actually really easy, to love my children's mother. Why is that a good father? I'll let you think about that. Why is that?
So moving from there, I'll just let you think about why that's a good advice. But let's look at what the Bible actually does say for fathers. What, what are we supposed to do? The first concept that I would like to share with you comes from Psalm 127. Psalm 127 is a very short psalm, and I'll just read the whole psalm. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord build, keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Now this does not specifically say anything about fathers, but it does. The concept for fathers that I want to pull from this psalm is that we should be thankful for our children. Okay, because I'm talking to fathers, I'm assuming you have children. If you if you don't, you're not a father, of course. We need to see children as a heritage of the Lord. We need to see them. We often think of mothers desiring children, but fathers need to desire children as well. Um, and it would be odd after you have children not to desire them, but I think that does happen. Sometimes we see these children as a we don't see them as a heritage of the Lord. We don't see them as something God has given us to use for his, or to try to teach to use for his kingdom. We don't see them as a reward. We see them as something that all of a sudden drains the budget to where we can't buy our toys anymore. And that's really sad. That's really, really tragic. We need to be thankful for our children, and we need to desire to see them grow in the Lord. And you know, this thing of not being able to afford children, the fact is nobody can afford children. You know what statistics say? According to some government, um, well, the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the cost of raising a child in 2013, I don't know what it would be for an inflation, but back then it was anywhere from $245,000 per child to $300,000 per child. Some of you have raised children. Uh, Brother JP, would you like to comment on that? Is that what it takes? Well, have a <laughs> you didn't keep track. No, I didn't. All right. But well, you know, I'm not actually surprised to hear you say that that you did not keep track. And I don't even know why anybody would. But I dare say that you would disagree with those figures, that it probably doesn't take $250,000 to raise one child from birth to the age 18. I don't know if it does or not. I don't have any 18-year-old children. And furthermore, I haven't kept track. I have no idea what it takes. But if this is true, it's no wonder if someone's really trying to have the best life now and they live the American dream, children, will, they really will hinder your pursuit of those dreams because they do take, it does cost money to bring children into the world. It costs money to feed them. It costs money to educate them. 
But it's not even fair to compare children to dollars and to, and to gauge their value on the dollars that you spend on them. That's not even fair. You wouldn't want your, your family, your parents to do that to you. Um, what if they would decide that you're not worth being born? I don't think we actually process it that way, but that is the fundamental thing that's going on there when people decide they can't have children because they can't afford it. It's They're saying they're not worth giving up my comfort or whatever it is. It's a very worldly philosophy. If we understand that children are in, eternal, that we are actually procreating with God, if you will. We're actually helping God create new life and bring eternal beings into the world. And we learned the other night that one soul is worth more than the whole world. So I actually have in my possession, if you will, my stewardship, my trust, I have five souls that are worth more than five worlds. That's tremendous. And I guess I'm okay if it costs me a couple million dollars to raise them. I don't think it will, but if you would take 250,000 times five, what do you get? I'm not sure. can't do the math that fast, but it's over a million dollars, right? A million and a quarter. Anyway, so the first principle for fathers is to be thankful for them and to not see them as a burden, but they are a blessing. And another Old Testament concept for fathers comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and you knew we would go there, didn't you? But Let's go there anyway. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. Okay, the second concept is that for fathers, we are responsible to teach our children about God. Notice the progression here, though. First of all, it has to happen here. We have to love God ourselves. And the law has to be in our hearts. If we are not able to articulate something about God spontaneously, if our children ask a question and we have to go and we have to check the reference book or see what the commentary says before we know how to answer the question, our children probably won't ask very many questions. Um, and the other thing that I uh, think that we need to grasp from this is that this, this process is not something that needs to be a formal sit-down, now we're going to have Bible lessons. I'm okay with family worship. I actually think we should do it. But if that's all the teaching we do our children, I don't know how family worship goes for you all, but for young children, it's really difficult to keep everybody's attention for more than about five minutes. It's, it's pretty hard to really get into discussing um, a lot about Scripture. But when you're walking along the way and you're sitting down and you get these questions that come along, what are the things that we are to be teaching our children? Well, if you look through if look through Proverbs chapters 1 through 9, you have all of these things, and a lot of them start out by saying, my son this, my son that, my son the other thing. 
And we can use that as kind of a template. What all was Solomon actually saying to his son in those chapters? It covers everything from finances to moral purity. It covers a lot of things in those chapters. And that, I believe, is what Moses was trying to communicate to the children of Israel. He's like, you need this in your heart, and you will just exude this stuff. When the questions come up, you will, you will, you will do it without even really knowing you have done it. I'm not saying that there's never times to formally sit down and instruct. I think you understand that. And the other thing that I would like to just mention here is that studying technique is is a um, for me it was fruitless. I'll just put it that way. The issue is just making sure that it happens. Another concept for fathers is to discipline children when they do wrong. Now. I think discipline is something that in some circles is overemphasized, but I have been told by older, wiser men that I should never minimize it because they feel like they have observed a trend the opposite direction. And so I don't know what to say about that. I just know that I have witnessed some young men who seem to take this concept that discipline is the only way to teach children. And I almost feel like it gets abusive. And so that's one reason, maybe because of some observations that I've made. But I do have a limited worldview. I, I can only meet so many people. But I have had older men say, you've softened that point too much because we now have people who are saying, you know, you, you need to not discipline. You need to try to understand things and counsel your children and all of that. Probably a ditch on both sides of that. But anyway, one Old Testament verse in Proverbs 23, withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. I kind of cringe at the King James language there a little bit. Um, But we do understand that there's correction that needs to happen. I want to also go to a New Testament passage in Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 11. Now, this is not talking about parents, but it's talking about God chastening his children. And the reason I go here is so that we can understand something about God and his relationship with us, and then we can learn something about our relationship with our children. So, Hebrews 12, uh, let's actually back up to verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby." 
So we get this concept for fathers that there is the aspect of discipline and chastening. Now, when we use the word discipline, it's it's a broader word than just corporal punishment. Discipline is actually very broad. When you get into the educational world, they talk about mathematical disciplines. Well, what does that mean? We don't need to go into all of that right now. But a couple of practical things. I'm not going to do a how-to. Let me just preface that with a little story. I, When I first became a father, as I told you, this was an overwhelming thing. And so I wanted to do this right, and I wanted to make sure that I had as much information as I could get. And I remember buying about three child training books. Did you ever try to graft trees? Did you ever notice that your trees never look like the trees in the book? My children never matched the people in the book. I'm not Denny Keniston or whoever. I'm not picking on his book. I'm just saying that I became frustrated after reading several books. And so I don't want to give a how-to, but I do want to offer you a few things that I have learned from personal experience, from observation, and also from teaching school where I was able to experiment with other people's children. Um, One of the things that I have learned is that any corrective discipline must be preceded by teaching. It is very easy for fathers, for mothers, to see their children err, and we jump on it and say, you should have known better. Really? You knew better, but somebody along the way taught you something about that. And if we have not done our job teaching our children what is acceptable and what is not acceptable, corrective discipline becomes a frustration to them because they never quite know when dad's going to pounce or when mom's going to pounce. The second thing is that the teaching must be able to be comprehended. I'm not sure how far to go with this one. I have some very strong views on this. Maybe I should have waited till tonight and I could run for the door, but I'm a little concerned at how young we begin to use corporal punishment on children. Do they really need spanked at three weeks old? Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not too much. Now, there's a whole, there's a whole context for why I say that, and if you want to ask me some more about that, I'd be glad to discuss it. But I really do wonder if we have fallen into a theological error that leads us to believe that two-week-old children need to be spanked. Just think about it. The teaching must be able to be comprehended before we use corrective discipline. Another thing that I've learned about corrective discipline is that we should always do it for the child, not to the child. There's a huge difference in that. And it should be because we love them. It sounds counterintuitive, but Hebrews very specifically says that God deals with us in certain ways because he loves us. The other thing that I've learned about corrective discipline is that we should be consistent with it and it should be in line with the offense and not our embarrassment. And what I mean by that is if our children are allowed to do something at home 
and we make no issue over it, but suddenly we realize that we're at somebody's place and that the person, the householder there, disapproves of what our children have done, but we've always left them do it. To discipline them because of that person's disapproval and our embarrassment about it is a really bad place to be. It's going to just, and that takes me to another point. Those points are there because I believe when we talk about Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2, this is the last principle for fathers, and I see that I am taking far too much time for this. I'm sorry about that. We'll try to move on here quickly. But Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. See, if those, those practical points that I gave you just a few minutes ago, I believe are very good ways to provoke our children to wrath when we do these things, and they become very frustrated, and they never quite know what to expect. And so they get angry as they grow up and realize the injustice of it. Children will know whether a punishment is just or not. They have... God has given them a keen sense of justice. And rightly so. I think we all have a very keen sense of justice. And we need to be... Um, we need to honor that. Um, I suppose it can be warped. But anyway. So those are five things for fathers. And again, it's not a how-to. You're going to have to go home as a dad and you're going to have to figure out what it, rec- what it actually means. And how is it going to work in your home? Don't worry so much about what Lyndon Burkholder thinks and don't read all the books and think that your children have to fit the mold. God is infinitely creative. You are never going to be me and I'll never be you. And your children, even within your own family, are different. And they share the same DNA, right? So obviously your children are going to be different than my children if my own children are different within my family. So I have come to be a little bit skeptical of how-to manuals Instead, I like to go back and look at these principles and say, okay, now how does this actually work? What am I going to do about it? How am I going to teach my children about God? How am I going to avoid provoking them to anger and so on and so forth? Now, let's talk to mothers just a little bit. A couple of principles for you to follow. Um, Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 9. Verse 7. Now, this is in the context of giving, so bear with me. It's actually about giving money. Every man according as he hath purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. The principle here I'm applying to mothers. It doesn't say anything about mothers here. I know that. But there's two ways to serve, and mothers are called on to serve a lot. Your children make demands on you that they can wear away. But cheerfully serving is a gift you can give your children and your husband, actually. Because the old saying, when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, is very, very true. Now, it's also true that when daddy ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. That's true, too, but... There's something about a cheerful lady that is a treasure. And I challenge you in the 
in the wearying days of serving your family, of having to clean yet another set of clothes and make yet another meal and to put up with another schedule conflict with your husband's crazy schedule. Just try to be as cheerful as you can. God loves cheerful givers, and that's actually what you are. You're a giver, and you're giving and giving and giving. Now, remember that you're going to have to have a source of joy beyond your circumstances or you won't be able to do this. Um, Keep in mind that that the joy needs to come from your identity in Christ and your relationship with him. Another concept from others from scripture, Ephesians 5, 33 and Titus 2, 5. We already looked at those, so you don't need to necessarily turn to them. But it talks about how you are to reverence your husband. And I'm going to extend that to respecting all people. Proverbs 11.22 talks about being discreet, um, which means to be self-controlled or moderate in opinions and passion. Um, I'm going to tell you a little secret if you don't know it already. Did you know that men, your husband in particular, is very intimidated by you when you become spiteful and bitter? Men do not know how to fight with women. They just don't. And that th- I think that's why when a woman becomes out of control in a home that we look at the man and say, why aren't you doing anything about it? Well, he doesn't actually know. I, I, really, I really believe that at some level. It's really hard for men to um, to know how to th- talk through things with their wives when they're upset. If I have a man get upset with me, I know how to deal with that. Even if it comes to physical blows, you know, there's there's things that you, you as a Christian, of course, I wouldn't hit him back, but... Um, So do your best to be self-controlled and moderate in your opinions and in your passions. Because when a woman gets out of line and gets really passionate and really angry about things, um, it's really, really hard for us to know what to do with that. And I don't know where this fits, but this isn't just the home. This goes out into the community and in your church as well. I would hesitate to put a statistic to it, but I suggest that a lot of church stress comes right on this side. Because men can actually work through problems, but when their wives are behind them pushing them to do things, there's nothing to get a hold of. Now, I don't want to blame you all for everything. I'm not going to do that, but I want you to understand that when you get out of line, there's hardly any person in the world that knows how to deal with you. Did I say too much? (laughs) Now they're going to just run us around, right? Um, Anyway. But interestingly enough, there is somebody that knows how to control women. And that's the second concept that I want to point out to you. And I can't go to a Bible verse. I can only go by general observations. And that is that your children will run you around. I don't know how they know how to do it, but they do. Your husband probably can't control you, but your children can. And this is actually really tragic, especially when 
women treat their sons as their husband. And this doesn't happen when they're young. It happens when they get older. But it does start when they're young. And let me illustrate what I mean by that. It is perfectly okay for you to pick up your husband's dirty socks. But I don't think it's okay for you to pick up your son's dirty socks. Is that enough? Do I need to say any more than that? Just think about what that's going to do to them. Another concept for mothers, and I can go to the Bible for this. We already read these verses, 1 Peter 3. talks about the meek and quiet spirit. Remember that inner beauty surpasses any outward beauty. It is a lie that the devil wants women to believe that you have to somehow be physically attractive in order to be of any value. God says that it is the beauty of a meek and a quiet spirit. And so we're back to that whole thing of being moderate in, in your opinions and passions. And here's the thing that's that I, as a man talking to women, it sounds really, what's the big word, misogynist? Is that the word? You hate women? Um, I don't, actually. Um, where was I going with that? Now I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Uh, I had something I wanted to say on that. And I don't. I, it wasn't in my notes, so maybe I'd better stick with the notes. Um, I think what I was going to say, if I remember right, is that men who who are godly men will recognize this fact. And if and if. If you find yourself as a woman attracting men of skeptical character uh, or of dubious character is what I meant to say, check how you act. Think about what you're portraying because if you find men that are, that are attracted to you that you're like, I don't want anything to do with that person. He's not a godly person. It just may be that you're putting more emphasis on an outward than an inner beauty. It may be. I'm not saying it will be necessarily. It's just a checkpoint for you to think about. Another concept for mothers is to stay close to God and ask for wisdom. James chapter 1, verse 5 tells us that God will give wisdom when we ask for it, and he doesn't scold us for asking for it. And so in your, in your dealing with children, your, your house duties, a lot of pressure, a lot of things that you're going to have to make decisions on, and likely... Given the way our world is ordered, your husband works away, and so he's not right there to ask. Um, ask God for wisdom, and he will he will direct you. I want to say two things to children. If you're old enough to understand me, if you understand the concepts that I'm giving you, you're old enough to get these points. I have noticed that children as they grow up tend to get to a point where they become a little disillusioned with their parents. But remember that the Bible actually commands you to honor your parents. There's, there's a command to obey and there's a command to honor. You may live to outgrow the command to obey because to me obey means that when I say pick up the toys, you obey and you pick up the toys. 
Now, hopefully your parents have taught you that. But I will never outgrow my obligation to honor my parents. And so as young people, if you're old enough to understand what I just said, make sure that you still honor your parents in every decision that you make. And even at my age, I've been out away from my parental home for 14 years. I'm still obligated to honor my dad and my mom in some way. And so when I make choices, decisions in life, I need to at least give more than a fleeting thought. To, I, wonder, I wonder what dad would say about this. I wonder how this would honor him. Not that it controls every detail of your life, but at least it gives you a point to go back to. The other thing that I would like to just say that I've observed, I can't prove this because I don't have teenage children, but it does seem to me that as children grow up that parents maybe get a little bit afraid of you because suddenly you're not this little boy or little girl that climbs into the lap and you're this quasi-adult that now we have to learn to relate to you on a different level. And so I would simply suggest that if you find yourself in, a, in, in some tension between you and your parents, um, honor them and never hold them to a standard beyond what you're willing to live. Because that's one of the traps that we fall into. We think they should be perfect, but we're allowed to have all kinds of weaknesses. Well, guess what? They're on a journey too. They are growing in Christ too. Yes, they should be more mature. That's true. But they might not be. And so we need to give them that room and we need to pray for them just like we would pray for other people. In conclusion, just to summarize, godly homes are ones where men are taking their role under Christ, leading their their wives and family, and the wives are submitting to God, I mean to their husbands, just like God, Christ, church. We see that, that whole thing. And when we follow God's ways, we will always be right. We may not do it perfectly, but we will always be right. Never lose sight of that. There is never a way to improve on what God has laid out. So let's follow that. And that concludes my message. Now, for tonight, this week I've not been giving any invitations, and it's not because the invitation isn't open to come to Christ, of course. Um, It's just I felt like the tenor of the messages were such that it was more instructional than it was um, evangelistic. But I, I would like to give opportunity this evening, maybe this is normal practice, I don't know, but after the memory work, if anybody wants to say memory work, uh, maybe just open it up for a time of testimonies. And it's it feels weird for me to say that because I'm not really fishing for any feedback. But it, it would be an opportunity for you to, if you want to make some public commitment, something that the Lord has been speaking to you, and it can be completely outside of these meetings. It doesn't have to be even related to this. But I would like to give you opportunity to do that, just to say whatever um, the Lord has been doing for you or some commitment that you want to make public to your to your brothers and sisters here. would like to give you opportunity to do that. And with that, I think I will close and turn the time back over to local ministry.